When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, kinfolk? Welcome to the number one college football show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, we're going to talk through this seismic change to USC and its fortunes ahead of entry into the Big Ten. Also, it's last year in the Pac-12, and Right now, they ain't got an athletic director. We're going to talk about what that means going forward. We're also going to get into my week six USFL power rankings. And it is all sorts of topsy-turvy, which I love because that means there's everything still to play for for this USFL season. We got four weeks of regular season football left, and then we're on to the playoffs. But first, we're bringing back a feature that we debuted last year around this time called New Faces in New Places, where we take a look at new head coaches in year one at their prospective schools. And we're going to start it off big with Nebraska and Matt Rule and just what the expectations are for Nebraska. And basically, I'm going to give you a much more, let's say, uh, high-pitched Wikipedia on what Nebraska has done since adding Matt Rule and what you can expect from that offense and that defense going into 2023. And I got to tell you off the top, I'm very optimistic. Now, I would be remiss if I did not say, I said on this show and I wrote on foxsports.com that I did not believe that Matt Rule would return to coaching in the foreseeable future after getting fired as the head coach of the Carolina Panthers because, well, he was going to get paid 40 million plus for sitting on his couch. And Matt Rule said, oh no, RJ, I really love this coaching thing. I really love this coaching thing so much that I want to take over what I believe is the hardest job in all of college football and that is becoming the head coach at Nebraska and I gotta tell you if anybody's ever built to do this job it is Matt Rule who flipped Temple into a winner who flipped Baylor when it was no longer one of the best college football programs in the country into a winner after a 1-11 season he is a program builder he is a game changer for your university and he is an example of why the highest paid employee at damn near every university in the country with a football team is the head football coach. So let's start with this. They're four and eight last year, but I really think that when we're talking about that, it doesn't really matter as we're talking about Matt rule because he, that's his bag. He takes over losing football programs and turns them into winners. He's the son of a preacher, man, like ivory Christian, uh, except he wears a hoodie and a vest. And we can't get that man to just choose one. That that might be on my agenda for 2023. Asking Coach Rule to just, just choose one. Because you out here with the traffic cop look, just it's not very 2023, Coach. I would like to see you do something different with your wardrobe. He also is really strong in an area that I think a lot of coaches pay lip service to, but don't do very well, which is over-communicate. Be in constant contact with his players and his coaches, but his players more importantly than his coaches. And I say more importantly because players play. That's why we call them players, right? There's only so much that a coach can do to prepare a football player to go out there and execute. But one of the ways in which Matt Rule knows what he can get out of his players is because they're always close by. So a couple of stories that I think underscore this 
and they take place at Baylor. So 2019, um. During the fall, their Monday Night Football would be on in the Simpson Center in Waco. And he would buy a bunch of Popeyes and have it around just to try to get the kids to come out of their dorm rooms and to be around each other and around the coaches. He also gave this quote to The Athletic that I absolutely love. I believe in this concept of like, I'm going to mess up the own word, propinquity. Goodness gracious, man. I got a master's in professional writing. (laughs) I believe in this concept of did it again. I believe in this concept like propinquity. Got it that time. Of keeping people close to each other, which is the definition of propinquity. Within 25 feet of each other. So try to get guys just around. So that's why this whole thing is trying to rebuild the program, right? Spending a lot of time around each other. That same year, they're getting ready to face Texas Christian when uh, Matt Fortuna for The Athletic is in town. And he's basically doing a deep dive into how Baylor had turned into a power in that season. And he was yelling at the offensive line about, we want 200 yards rushing against Texas Christian. But in that same practice, he would pull a player aside who did not help his teammate off the ground, tear him a new one, and then high-five him, right? That's how Matt Rule wants to get down. Also later in that practice, he kept the offensive line after practice ended, told him to get on the sideline because we're going to run gassers. The quote that I love here is, we're going to protect the quarterback or we're going to become cross-country runners. You can understand how an offensive lineman might want to do one more than the other, and that is the point. But also, after all of that was done, Matt Rule is still standing on the football field hearing from his players, and it's a two-way conversation, right? It is not just him yelling out what they have to do and what they're doing wrong. It's also him picking them up after chewing them out and then hearing their perspective. And I think that that part is really important as we're talking about rebuilding a program because you're trying to earn the trust of players who have been let down, and not just for one year, but in recent years. And he's done that every stop. Like at Baylor, they go one and 11 in year one. They go seven and six in year two. And then they have their magic year going 11 and three and a Sugar Bowl appearance with what I thought was not the best group of football players on the face of the earth, to be quite frank with you. I'm looking at this program that at one point was called everything but a child of God and got launched like the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals, held fast, turned nuggets into gold at Waco, Texas. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I can get on board with one Matt Rule, especially as he has put together what I think is a fantastic staff, starting with his offensive and defensive coordinators, right? I think you need to know about Marcus Satterfield, his offensive coordinator at Nebraska. But the first time that I really took a look at who Marcus Satterfield is, when he was offensive coordinator at South Carolina, that was just a year ago. And the reason that I came to know him is, he was recruiting Spencer Rattler out of the portal. You'll know that Spencer was booed in a win against West Virginia at home and then became the first Lincoln-Riley quarterback at Oklahoma to get the hook and from, from playing in a game that, frankly, I've seen play, quarterbacks play worse than he did against Texas, who Lincoln-Riley stayed with. One of them is Jalen Hurts, right? Michaela Williams comes in there, takes over the job, becomes the player that he's becoming. Rattler goes into the portal. And Satterfield calls him up and says, people say that you suck. People say that I suck. What if you come to South Carolina and we go whoop their asses together? Hey, man, that's the kind of football coach I want to play for. Somebody that is equally balanced, a chip on both shoulders, who wants to see you on your count to Monte Cristo, which is my favorite novel. And they were able to get that done in 2022. They beat Clemson. And they beat Tennessee in the same year. My goodness, Rattler went for 3,000 pass yards, 18 TDs. And I think he 
was really outstanding there down the stretch. I would have loved to see what another year would look like with Mark Satterfield as the offensive coordinator, but Satterfield said he got a text from Coach Rule right after they beat Clemson that said, call me. And he had a sneak of suspicion about what he was being called about. Probably didn't know it was a Nebraska offense coordinator job, but he certainly thought it was going to be another opportunity. And he took that with Rule as they had been working together for quite some time. They go back a ways to Western Carolina in 2005, and they spent some time together at Temple in 2013. But I also think Nebraska is going to really love the offense that they see because it is old school. They're going to huddle. That's how pro style they're going to be. They're going to huddle. And it's a long quote, but I want to give it its full due for Mark Satterfield as he was talking about in his opening presser at Nebraska about the huddle. The huddle is the heart and soul of football. You cannot teach leadership moments. You can't script leadership moments that happen in a huddle. If you talk to any football player that played in a huddle, they're always going to talk about funny things that happen in a huddle. There's all these moments that happen in a huddle. How do you ask your quarterbacks to be a leader if he never talks? It's a good point. Today's football has become clapping my hands for a snap count and coaches signaling plays on cards. Then they complain about their quarterbacks not being a vocal leader. When does he have a chance to lead? Hey, man, if there has been a better argument for going back to a huddle, I have not heard it. But that's also how I learned to play football. It's how many of us learn to play football because you got spots in the huddle, right? Right tackle's here, left tackle's here, center's here, head up with the quarterback usually, right? Wide receivers on the outside because you're going to get the play. You're going to sprint out to the numbers. I really love that, right? And some of our favorite thematic moments and our favorite theatrical moments happen in a huddle. It is where a quarterback can look into the eyes of the guys that he has to lead and either inspire confidence, right? Or inspire, well, I don't want to say cowardice, but that's what it is. That's who you're looking for from your quarterback. If he's shook, you're shook. That's the way this game is played. So to know that that is what he wants to get out of his quarterback is a very big deal because, frankly, if the quarterback play is good, the quarterback is confident, the program is probably going to follow suit. Now, they picked up a quarterback last Friday in the 2024 class you need to know about in Daniel Kalen. He was a Missouri commit who flipped to Nebraska just five days after Nebraska lost Dylan Rayola to Georgia. At that time, we thought that Nebraska, along with SC and Georgia, were all in the running to win the number one player in the 2024, uh, I almost said draft, but it's the recruiting class. You get what I'm saying? And Daniel Kalen went to go throw for Marcus Satterfield, understood what the offense was like, and is very excited to see what he might be able to do in it. And I think there's a really good comp for Kalen's skill set being closer to Rattler's. But I also think, you know, they're going to be complimented on defense with a coordinator that I think is just as talented and as good as Marcus Satterfield in Tony White. Tony White runs 3-3 stack, which I just talked about how Nebraska fans are going to love the offense. I don't know how much you're going to love a 3-3 stack defense because it doesn't exactly scream hard nose. But I tell you this, it screams results, right? Texas Christian made the national championship game running a 3-3 stack, and Tony White put together a top 30 defense at Syracuse running a 3-3 stack. And not just last year, but the year before that. They ranked inside the top 10 in defensive TDs in two out of the last three years. And they held opponents to 20 or fewer points 10 times in those two years or over the last two years. I also think that it's important to know that White can develop defensive players, right? That's the other thing. Scheme is one thing. His ability to do this at Syracuse is another. 
but he developed four freshman All-Americans in three years at Syracuse. And you will really want to take a pay attention to that because they've got some studs on that defensive line. They got Texas A&M transfer Elijah Judy coming in. Riley Van Poppel, six foot five, two hundred seventy-five pounds. He's the son of former first-round Major League Baseball pick Todd Van Poppel. And then you got defensive lineman Vincent Carroll Jackson, who is very intriguing for me. Six foot five, two seventy. Went to the same high school and was coached by the same head coach as Micah Parsons and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Parsons, of course, was an All-American at Penn State and is an All-Pro for my Dallas Cowboys. Those guys join up this summer. So you're getting really great. Well, Judy's already there. Those two freshmen that I mentioned, Van Poppel and Carol Jackson, they're joining up this summer. I think you're going to like what you see. And I think if it looks not unlike the kind of three-man front that Baylor would run in 2019, you're going to get on board too because that means you're going to get good Maybe not in a hurry. It might not be this year. It might be in a couple of years, but you're going to see the foundation here. And Matt Rule is also doing the things that I think Nebraska fans value the most because if nothing else, Nebraska fans have shown themselves to be some of the most loyal in the sport because basically since the move to the Big Ten, they ain't been no good, which means there is a generation of high school football players who don't remember Nebraska being good or to put it fair. Don't remember that you should fear Nebraska because you shouldn't, right? Like, I feared Nebraska, but that was when they had Indomitian Sioux in 2009. That was when Tommy Frazier was leading teams to back-to-back national championships on what is arguably the greatest college football team of all time. That's when Eric Crouch could win the Heisman without being— that dude couldn't throw the football. And he won a Heisman trophy at Nebraska, okay? You did not look past Nebraska— at all in the big eight or the big 12, they were going to hurt you. And all of a sudden they get to the big 10 and I get to hear from big 10 fans, lifelong big 10 fans all the time that I don't know nothing about Nebraska scares me. Do they even have an identity? I'm going, Oh my goodness, man. I can't wait for Nebraska to be good. And I'm sure Nebraska fans can't either, but a lot of that's going to come down to the quarterback. Okay. I mentioned how Marcus Satterfield views a quarterback, how the huddle is a vehicle for the quarterback to lead to inspire confidence. And when they made Jeff Sims the guy after spring practice ended, you could see they had put all their chips on him. So much so that Casey Thompson, 24 years old, and having transferred into Nebraska a couple years ago, has entered the portal and come out at Florida Atlantic. That's how much Jeff Sims means to this program in 2023. He looked good in Nebraska's spring game. 9 of 13 passes for 139 yards. Might be the best he's looked in over a year. It is a guy that was dealing with a foot injury last year. He also didn't play basically the last month of the college football season before entering the portal coming out at Nebraska because it was clear to him that Satterfield and Rule had a plan, and that's all he was looking for. Also, the son of a preacher man, like Ivory Christian. Now, I think he has some things to prove here, okay? Because Jeff Sims threw for 4,464 yards, 30 TDs, 23 INTs, completing just 57.5% of his passes in 23 starts, but also over the course of three years. Just hasn't been consistent, right? He's rushed for 1,166 yards and 11 TDs during that time too. But the thing that I think Nebraska should take from Jeff Sims is when he's on, he's real good. He's real good. Threw for 359 yards in 2021 against an eventual ACC champion pit, right? He is the first quarterback in Georgia 
Tech Jackets history to throw for that many yards in 20 years. It's been that time. He was the first true freshman to start the uh, the season opener at Georgia Tech since 2003 when he did the uh, when he took that job. Oh, I should say when he won that job in 2020. Now, also in 2020, he became only. The only other Yellow Jackets is Calvin Johnson to win ACC Rookie of the Year, or excuse me, Rookie of the Year, Rookie of the Week honors three times, and I think that is not insignificant. Now, I'm not going to compare Jeff Sims to the kind of imprint that Megatron has had on the sport. I am going to say that he's on a team that at one point had Jameer Gibbs, and he's the dude that people were putting their chips on, all right? We know what Jameer Gibbs is capable of. We know what he did at Alabama. You're hoping to get the same thing from Jeff Sims, uh, only at a, in a bigger way. And I think the comp to P.J. Walker at Temple is probably what you can expect. And P.J. Walker is a dude who would absolutely run around looking to throw the ball. He might actually leave the pocket just to get a clearer picture and then throw a dart downfield. But if you're not spying him, yeah, he could take off on you. I mean, Jeff Sims is also larger. He's six foot four. He's 220, and he's got speed. I'm very excited about what he might be able to do in this 2023 season, and frankly, we're all going to be paying attention. We're going to be paying attention because in week two, Nebraska plays Colorado, which is a game that Nebraska fans believe that they should win. And frankly, I am perhaps the only person among national folks. I should take that back. I should take that back. I'm in the minority of national folks who believe that Colorado will be good in 2023. But one of the games to watch for on whether or not the naysayers are right about Nebraska or the naysayers are right about Colorado is that game. Nebraska versus Colorado in September will have my eyes, have your eyes. But it is just one date on a schedule that basically should be called no days off. I mean, I looked at the schedule and I went and looked at the 2022 schedule and the only team on their schedule that they beat last year, that beat Nebraska, is Iowa. And we would all argue Iowa should not have lost to the Huskers. But then again, Iowa was doing this without an offense, okay? They won eight games with the offense basically sitting on the bench is how it felt. Now, I know that feels a little harsh, but if you watch Iowa football in 2022, you understand what I'm getting down with, all right? Now, if you are a college football fan or an NFL fan, a casual fan, you'll look at the schedule and say, hey, they ought to beat Louisiana Tech in Northern Illinois. But since you listen to this show, as this show is for diehard college football fans, you'll know that Nebraska is a candidate to put the money in the bag right here when they have to play Louisiana Tech or they have to play Northern Illinois. It, they're capable of losing both of those games, all right? And frankly, if they win those games, and let's say they get past Colorado, or and they win their opener August 31st on Thursday night against Minnesota in Minneapolis, they're 4-0, which would equal their win total for 2022 and put them two games off the win total provided to us by Fox Bet, but also two wins away from being bowl eligible. And all you got to do if you won those four games, again, big if, if you won those four games, you beat Illinois, you beat Northwestern, you beat Michigan State, you beat Purdue, you beat Wisconsin, two of those teams, and you're going bowling for the first time since 2016. We'll see about Purdue. We'll see about Illinois, but Wisconsin's basically going to be starting on the same footing as Nebraska, and I think Luke Fickle and Matt Rule are going to be compared to each other, frankly, because they're in the Big Ten West as it stands right now, 
and they are both known commodities. They're both known program builders. They both got the guy they wanted at quarterback. They're both going to run a 3-3 stack. Uh, I think Wisconsin's going to try to air it out, and that's probably a good thing because that's the difference between Wisconsin being a top-10 team and a team that competes for the Big Ten championship and wins it, right, is being able to air it out. But, you know, these are also proud programs with tremendously loyal fan bases. So I'm interested to see how that goes. Michigan State, I don't know what they're going to look like, but I'm sure Mill Tucker's trying to figure it out, especially with Peyton Thorne going into the portal, coming out of Auburn, Keon Coleman going into the portal, coming out at Florida State. Purdue with Ryan Walters uh, and, frankly, Graham Harrell is intriguing. They also got a quarterback in Hudson Card. I think that could be a fun game. But what I'm saying here is if it doesn't feel like there's any let-up, on that 2023 schedule for Nebraska is because there really isn't. So I think they can get to six wins. And I think like Nebraska fans, they would be, I would be thrilled with six wins, but that's going to be a lot to ask of them in year one. But again, it ain't about year one in the Matt rule experience. It's about year two and year three. And by year three, we should be talking about Nebraska being one of the better teams in the Big Ten, if all things go as they should. And this is even with USC and UCLA joining the conference in 2024. All right, that is my segment for New Faces in New Places. I appreciate you coming along with me as I'm fumbling words and whatnot, but you're not new. That's nothing new here either. Let's talk about USC AD Mike Bone choosing to resign last Friday. This was in the great Friday news dump that was. And we all kind of looked up and said, wait a second. Why would USC Athletic Director Mike Bone resign? We just know that he was hired three and a half years ago, and his legacy as it is right now is he got USC into the Big Ten Conference, which is no small feat. I mean, the analogy I wrote down here is his legacy at USC will be, you know, that he brokered the Trojan horse showing up at the door of the Big Ten, but, you know, the Trojans didn't actually bring the Trojan horse. The Greeks did. To Troy. Again, uh, you, you get what I'm saying here, but if USC is going to show up to your door and ask you if we can come in, you're probably going to say, yeah, sure, absolutely. We'd love to have you. The more the barrier. Bring UCLA with you too. And then you'll look around and go, we just added two really great programs to our conference. And I'm sure the LA market and of course USC are thrilled about this as they're getting ready to do it. But also he hired Lincoln Riley away from Oklahoma, which to date, is the biggest head coaching coup of my lifetime, right? Like, nobody saw that one coming, least of all me, and I'm an Oklahoma fan, right? Players didn't see it, coach didn't see it. And not only did he lure that dude away, it worked right away. They were 4-8 and eight in 2021. 2022, they win 11 games. But while Lincoln Riley has produced yet another Heisman winner, USC hasn't won a conference title hasn't won a New Year's Six game, hasn't made the college football playoff, and certainly hasn't won a national title with Lincoln Riley, but that's nothing new, right? That's basically, he was able to do nearly all of that except the national title part at Oklahoma, and I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be able to do that at SC. It's just, can you win a college football playoff game, and then can you win a national championship? I also think that, you know, it's not insignificant that USC is joining the Big Ten as the Big Ten signed one of the most lucrative TV deals in history, and the men's and women's basketball teams are off and running. They signed the number one player in the women's hoops game, and then they add Bronny James, and by extension, his father, LeBron James, to their coffers as LeBron James is going, I don't know, I'm thinking about retirement. Wouldn't you love to see Daddy LeBron on every USC basketball broadcast? I'm sure USC would. But 
let's talk about the what we know about Mike Bone re resigning, right? He quit 24 hours after the Los Angeles Times sent questions to USC and him about internal criticism of his leadership at SC around inappropriate comments and unwanted touching of female colleagues at SC, right? That's it. That's what we know. We also know that he quit and that he said that he would like to take more time with his family. I don't see why he wouldn't. So the question comes, what's at stake for the next athletic director hire at SC? And I would argue more than you think, right? Now, USC has not been immune to scandal over the last decade and a half. They also have not met their own standard of greatness, right? We're talking about a program that at one point had such a stranglehold on the sport that we were all not just getting bored with USC football, but we were going, can somebody please beat Pete Carroll's team so we don't have to talk about him anymore, right? That happened, but that's who they want to be again. This is a program that hasn't won a Pac-12 championship since 2017 and ran off the guy in Clay Helton that they didn't think was good enough to keep them winning. And frankly, maybe wouldn't have not. What's it that guy? Because they went and got Lincoln Riley. I also think that you're taking over basketball programs that are in good shape. You are in a space where your track program is also very much in the spotlight and has an opportunity to have a number of alumni on the world championship team, if not the Paris 2024 teams. But you also have to help work out these nitty gritty details that is what people are calling integration into the Big Ten Conference. And travel is at the top of that list, right? How are you going to negotiate those things? What money are you going to allocate for those things? You're playing West Coast games, and frankly, you're going to go play on the East Coast a number of times, right? Remember, Rutgers and Maryland are also in the Big Ten. So you're going to be playing on the East Coast time. You're going to have jet lag. And your Olympic sports are going to feel the brunt of this. Football is going to be taken care of because football is always the main thing at a Power 5 university. I also think you're going to take over a, a program that is in desperate need of a squeaky clean reputation. I mean, outside of football, the Varsity Blues scandal, right? You're also at a space where people are always going to be up USC because, and by up USC, I mean up their keister. Up their keister because, eh, I mean, it's a, it's a nice place for people to hate. Like it, it just is, right? It's a private university that does well. Kind of makes it a magnet for criticism. But also, you're in Hollywood, right? You have a lot of people that watch you and a lot of people that root for you and a lot of people that working class folks might think are a little, little too high on the hog. And anytime that they get an opportunity to go beat you down, they will. And there's nothing more working class than the Big Ten. That's why football is such a big deal and why, you know, frankly, Big Ten country, Big 12 country, SEC country, we take that stuff real seriously. And we don't like the fact that perhaps you've been able to slide on some of these things, right? So I think uh, as you go looking at who they hire, and I have no idea who that person might be, just so we're clear here, it's a great job. It really is. It's a great job. But it's a job that apparently is really difficult to do well without stepping in it. And I would love to see them hire somebody that is credible, capable, and supremely talented. And you know, knowing what USC offers for that sort of a job, they should be able to get a better hire than the one that they had. I, I feel that, right? I mean, when Mike Bone got hired from Cincinnati, people were going, really? This is this is who you picked? And it was the right pick at the time because you look at how it goes in as far as the last three and a half years on the athletic front, but you got to do better than that because you're SC. That is the point here. You have to do better than that because you're SC. So you want to keep telling people and so we will keep hearing. All right, let's talk about my week six USFL power rankings. Number one, 
the Houston Gamblers. Now, I was in Memphis for the Houston Gamblers game against New Jersey and for the Memphis Showboats game, my goodness, against the Pittsburgh Maulers. And I'm really, really up on the Gamblers, who have now run four in a row. Houston beat New Jersey 16-10 at Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium, and they did that behind Mark Thompson once again. The Gamblers are undefeated when Mark Thompson plays at tailback for them. They also got Kenji Bahar back from injury in this game, and he didn't look really sharp, but he did look in control of the offense, and that's what you're asking for. Curtis Johnson has done an outstanding job in year one. Kenji went out of his way to say, Coach Johnson is a player's coach, and he is listening to us. We have input on what we're doing and why we're doing it. I think that as a quarterback, you got to love that because you got a, a head coach that believes in you. And Eric Price, offensive coordinator, Chris Wilson, defensive coordinator for the Gamblers, have those program, uh, programs, that, that franchise clicking on all cylinders. Man, I always have a problem transferring from college football, where we're talking about programs, to the NFL, where we're talking about clubs, to the USFL, where we're talking about franchises. But I also think that we need to underscore a relationship between Kenji Bahar and wide receiver Justin Hall, a former Ball State wide receiver, who has been really great for them, especially in the yards after catch area. He'll catch a slant, he'll catch a screen pass, and he'll turn it into an explosive play. He was able to do that a number of times against the New Jersey Generals. But, I mean, they got a big game this Saturday against Memphis at Simmons Bank, or excuse me, Sunday at Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium, where the hometown team, by the way, is getting hometown uh, support. Now, one of my favorite things to do as I go on these trips to cover the USFL at the different hubs, Birmingham, Memphis, Ben Canton, is seeing how the locals think or feel about these franchises. And my goodness, they love football in Memphis. Now, I know this because I went to the University of Tulsa, which means played a number of games against the Memphis Tigers. And frankly, I mean, we can keep going about how good Memphis football has been over the last basically 25 years. But I'm also wildly surprised to see how many people are showing up to support that team. And by association, the gamblers, right? They even got a yacht club in Memphis where you got a bunch of folks that are wearing sailor's hats that are showing up to the game. I really enjoy that. And they got their first win at Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium on Saturday when I was there. Not going to say you know too much about this, but Houston and the Memphis Showboats, who are number two in my USFL power rankings, are undefeated when I'm at the stadium. Just saying, you might want to have me back sooner rather than later. The Showboats got it done with the first shutout of the season by anybody in the USFL. Won that game 22-0 against the Maulers, and they looked awesome. On defense, they looked awesome. It also extended their winning streak to three in a row, and it was the franchise's first shutout victory since June 15, 1985, when the Memphis Showboats shut out the Jacksonville Bulls. My goodness. And also, it, I kind of buried the lead on this one. Derek Dillon performed one of the coolest plays in football. All right. So, it's the end of halftime, or it's about to be. And the Pittsburgh Maulers are going to try to let Chris Blewett make a 59-yarder to put them on the board. Not only does it come up short, but Derek Dillon is sent back in case it does. And Derek Dillon has 4-2-9 speed and was a wide receiver on that 2019 LSU National Championship team. Also, didn't get a whole lot of run because you know what wide receivers are on that 2019 LSU National Championship team. We're talking about Jamar Chase. We're talking about Terrace Marshall. My goodness, Thad Moss at tight end, right? And then Justin Jefferson, who has become one of the premier wide receivers in the NFL. 
So Derek Dillon had a hard time breaking through, but not with the showboats. All right. And my goodness, he catches this, uh, this ball that is short after Chris blew it, kicked it wide, right. And a little short, but he catches it on the end line, lifts his heels off the line, catches it over his head, makes sure that he hasn't gone out of bounds and then commences to start taking off. Okay. And as he took off, I said out loud, you're a dead man. And he said, nah, RJ, I got it. Watch this. And he spun off one defender, kept his balance, saw it was blocked up, and took it 109 yards to the house for the longest scoring play in USFL history and tied for the longest scoring play in pro football history. It is always cool for me when I get to be a part of the history of this league. And as the person who has been covering this league, I think, longer than anybody since his return. I mean, I started covering the USFL in January 2022. I don't take these things for granted. And I genuinely enjoy that I get to see guys like Derek Dillon go and have themselves a day, right? He's also special teams player of the week, had 219 all-purpose yards in that win. Number three here, we got the Birmingham Stallions. The Stallions beat the Michigan Panthers 27-13 at Ford Field to get back on the good foot. They moved four and two. Alex Magoo has become a point guard at quarterback. The quarterback at Birmingham is more important, I think, than the quarterback in any other franchise because Skip Holtz trusts him so much. You can hear it in the play calls. He's asking Magoo, what do you want to do? What do you like here? And Magoo is taking full control, putting guys in places to win. And when he might get the rush to him, he's able to navigate himself out of it and pick up first downs. He's 19-24, 133, rush for 82 yards. And then C.J. Maribel had himself a day, 18 rushes for a 100 yards in the win. I mean, you see that we got three, and now moving to number four, all four of the South Division teams with the New Orleans Breakers coming in at number four are in the top four of my USFL power rankings because I genuinely believe that if the USFL did not have divisions, we probably wouldn't see the North playing in the playoff. It has been that good in the South over the last month. The Breakers lost to the Philadelphia Stars 16-10 to in a game that fell apart for them down the stretch, right? It's the second time in as many weeks that, uh, or second time in three weeks, I should say, that I've seen the Breakers just not be able to hold it together uh, down the end. I mean, they did this against the Showboats as well. McLeod Bethel-Thompson, 22 of 38, 190 yards with two interceptions and a TD. Uh, the Breakers also had 11 penalties for 94 yards in this game, and that's just not going to help you win football games. Their next game is this Saturday against the, uh, uh, excuse me, the Birmingham Stallions at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. At Protective Stadium, and I will be there for that game. I have good fortune of covering both uh, Birmingham and New Orleans games this season. Very cool. I got to see the Breakers become the first team to knock off the Birmingham Stallions, and now we'll get to see if the Birmingham Stallions can repay the favor on Saturday. Number five, I got the Philadelphia Stars at 3-3. Three and three. They moved to the top of the North Division with their win against the New Orleans Breakers. Case Cook has completed 17-27 for 238 with two INTs. And former first-round NFL draft pick at 2015 Belitnikoff Award winner Corey Coleman caught six passes for 76 yards. Again, I throw a rock, I hit a first-round draft pick. I throw a rock, I hit an All-American. I throw a rock, I hit a national champion. This league is full of dudes because that's just what we do in this country. We produce dudes. Number six, I got the New Jersey Generals. Mostly because I think that the Generals are going to figure it out. They had a couple of wild penalties. Uh, center was caught downfield. Right, like five, six yards downfield on some plays, got called back. DeAndre Johnson got sat in favor of Kyle Oletta, who was figuring it out as it went along and put together what I thought was a fantastic drive to end the game, but it wasn't enough to get them the win. 
they're at two and four. And this is the team that, again, last year went nine and one. And, and Coach Riley said it best in the postgame presser. Look, the games that we're losing are the games we won last year. When things just went our way, they're not going our way right now. But it's the same sort of football team. You get Darius Victor back on the good foot, you'll be okay. Number seven, the Pittsburgh Maulers took that goose egg to Memphis, but they had the defensive player of the week in Kayava Tizino, who had 16 tackles in that game. My goodness, he leads the league in tackles with 62. Him next to Ruben Foster, that's the best linebacking core in all of the USFL. And I, I mean that. Those two dudes are seeking destroy. They're outstanding. Uh, Olive Sagpula is also outstanding on that defensive line. Uh, I could keep going on. Marcus Gilbert, Jaron Horton, defense coordinator at Pittsburgh, does an outstanding job. They deserve an offense that can do what they did, frankly, the week before. Just go score some points and, and let the defense hold it together for you. And then number eight, we got the Michigan Panthers, who are riding a four-game losing streak. They're going to play New Jersey at 530 Eastern on Sunday at Pro Football Hall of Fame Stadium in Canton and hope to get off the stride. Trey Quinn was their best player in their loss last week, though. He had 108 yards on seven catches. Linebacker Frank Ginda has been outstanding. He had 18 tackles in that game. And Edge, Breland Speaks, is putting up numbers that have him in the running for Defensive Player of the Year. So you can see one through eight. I got nice things to say about everybody. It's just somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. All right, that is going to do it for this episode of the number one college football show. My thanks as always to our lead producer, Tyler Wojak. Our senior producer is Catherine Donnelly. Our director is Kyle Holly. Our social media maven is Javion Duncan. Our production assistant is Kiara Santana. Our leader screening is Jack Coakley. I'm the host, RJ. We will see y'all on Friday. Deuces.